Jeff Smith and welcome to The Secrets of Success. Throughout my life, I've been fascinated by one single question, and it's how do successful people become successful? What is it that makes that big difference in our lives? Over the last 40 years, I've interviewed rich people, famous people, and many millionaires to find out their secrets of success and to share them here with you. Of course, success is not always measured in money. And in these programs, I'm looking at many different success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick, how they overcame adversity to keep on going when times got tough. And I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. In today's episode, I'm talking with Dominic Slice Tyke. You might be thinking, why has he got the name Slice in the middle of his name? Well, that's because, wait for this, he is an F-16 fighter pilot instructor. In other words, Slice is the real life Top Gun. Never mind the movies, in the real world, to fly, fly a fighter jet, you need a plan, you need a coach, and you need the right training. And living life in the world of a fighter pilot requires all three. Today, Dominic brings his fighter pilot background skills and mindset and apply them to business to guide driven individuals who want to succeed who want to be their best and who want to define their purpose. Dominic also has businesses. He's also a two times number one best-selling author. And I'm really proud to disclose that the proceeds from his book go to charity to help kids with cancer. It's plain to see that Dominic Tyke is no ordinary guy. This is going to be an interview of questioning what it takes to make decisions at 800 miles an hour plus, pulling upon every resource that's available to you in order to succeed, and coupled with that, working under immense pressure when your own life is under threat. So let's bring in this amazing man himself. Welcome to the show, Dominic Slyke. Thanks, uh, Mr. Smith. Jeff, I am super excited to to be here. I don't get to talk to people in the UK that often. (laughs) Well, you are super excited. Well, let me, let me. Full disclosure here, I'm a pilot. Flying is my passion. It has always been my passion. So when you reached out to me and said, hey, Jeff, would you like me to be a guest on the show? I thought, what? Oh my goodness me. So I'm going to be completely self-indulgent here. You have to be a guest on the show, I thought. But in all seriousness, there are some amazing lessons to be learned for people who want to succeed in life. And I'm so excited about what is to come on the show. But yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. Before we do that, I want to find out more about you, Dom. So to get us started, I want to take you back to your early life. So three questions for you. Where were you born? What was life like for you as a child? And 
What were your dreams and aspirations as you were growing up? Yeah, so I grew up in the Pacific Northwest in the USA uh, in, in uh, Spokane, Washington. So on the eastern side of Washington State. Um, and then, you know, the, the weather up there is that we get about 300 days of clouds and fog. Um, per year. I don't know if you guys are... Not, not good for flying then. <laughs> yeah, not, not great, right? It's not super conducive for flying um, when you're starting out, right? Especially yeah, yeah, when yeah. you're doing fun flying like you and I like to do, which is looking yeah. out the window and taking in the scenery. Um, and life was uh, amazing. You know, we had uh, early on in life, uh, dad moved us out to a, a larger piece of property. And so we got to live... Um, not far from the city itself, but we were out in the country and we had million dollar views of the, the ski hill uh, that was there. And so, I mean, at a young age, I think at may maybe two or three years old, I was downhill skiing. And um, based on how things kind of shook out in my past, I was private schooled, public schooled, private tutored, uh, pr uh, homeschooled at, at various different points of my life. And when I was private tutored, it was great because the, the instructor would come maybe two, two times a week and she'd give us our homework. Well, at 14, I got hired to be a, a downhill ski instructor. And so I got to ski for free because I was broke and didn't have any money and I got paid to do it. Um, and my uncle would come pick us up and we'd go up to the ski hill and, and ski quite a bit. So downhill skiing, playing sports um, building forts and, uh, shooting our BB guns. And, you know, we had, we had a number of animals growing up, whether those were cows or chickens or rabbits. So, um, very fond memories there. And then to your third question, um, flying has always been something that I was just very fascinated with, even as at a young age, um, probably like you, um, I don't think everybody is that way. Some there, I've met a lot of pilots that, you know, kind of grew into it later on in their life, but it was definitely at the forefront of my mind it was either to be a, a, a major league baseball player or to be a fighter pilot. And so I didn't know how to do either of those. <laughs> you, and, you, you didn't want to be an average life then, huh? The top <laughs> of whatever it is that you do. <laughs> well, believe it or not, I think this, this might actually um, surprise some people. Uh, but I was talking to my dad a, a number of months ago and he said to me, which makes total sense, you know, because I was, I was a little bit quieter of a kid growing up and I was shy in certain, um, situations. And as you and I both know, um, being introverted or extroverted or shy or not, um, is contextual, right? When you're home with your people that, you know, you're not introverted. Those are your, that's your family, right? So I think that was something that I learned early on as a, as a 14 year old kid downhill ski instructing is that one day I just remember getting off the ski lift and I thought to myself, these people don't know that I'm shy. And so this is my class. I need to run the class and, and just, I'm, I'm not, I'm an extrovert today and they want to learn how to ski. And so that kind of led me down the, the path of, you know, teaching early on, which is one of my one of the, something that I'm passionate about is teaching people how to do things, specifically how to fly fighter jets. <laughs> and and uh, one thing led to another. But yeah, I, I think early on passion was sports and, and, and airplanes. Awesome. Awesome. So it was always within you. I was speaking with my flying instructor and we had a similar conversation in that he said to me, why do you want to fly? And I said, I don't know. It's always within me. 
I can't get rid of it. It's just something that I have to do. I just love it. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. And there's there's going to be times when you're, whether you're running a business, going to school, growing up, whatever, that that passion may not be fun, but because you're passionate about it, it's a lot of work at some point know that as you, as you master that craft, whatever it happens to be, it then, then your passion becomes extremely fun. Cause I can tell you as many people can probably attest, there were a lot of flights that I did as a fighter pilot that were not fun, especially when you are learning. And when you're learning, you're failing a lot and nobody likes to fail. Yeah, absolutely right. So becoming a fighter pilot then, take us from the beginning in that, when did you first decide that you wanted to join the USAF? And did you decide to be a fighter pilot or did life just take you that way? What happened? At seven years old, so I, I liked we we live close to a little airfield so i would see airplanes flying over there was a there was a military base there so back in the back in the day when they had b52 bombers they would fly right over our house and they were huge aircraft wait, wait, i mean oh, the size yeah. of an apartment the size of an apartment building and they would fly right over um our house on final and so i would just i was always that kid that when there was an airplane flying i'd be the the kid looking up to the sky and completely distracted in a different world. Well, at seven years old, my, my dad bought me a little F four fighter jet that we put together that I still have to this day. So I've always kept that. And then at 12 years old, my, my dad's younger brother, he took me to, he was a aircraft mechanic for Alaska airlines and he took me to the flight line and, you know, I got to stand on the flight deck while the mechanics were running the motors. And I get to smell the jet fuel and wow. see every see all of the gauges moving. And you can imagine a 12 year old kid, right? Like, I don't think you can even do that legally nowadays. Um, but I got to do that. And then, you know, I, I kind of immersed myself in some civilian flight programs early on young. And then at 16 years old is when I, I took my first flight in a little, a little two, you know, two seat aircraft and, and Jeff, I remember it very vividly to this day because I pushed the power up and as we started to pick up airspeed, there was this feeling of I'm going to die. This is the coolest <laughs> thing I've ever done. And, and then, and then the wheels were up and it, it went too fast for me to even say no to it. Right. Because yeah. it felt like I was on a lawn chair strapped to a, a lawnmower engine. Right. So, um, and I was that, that day very vividly, I knew that that was what I, what I needed to be doing with, um, a lot of my life at least was, um, exploring things in the third dimension. And that's, that's being a pilot. So did that at, uh, you know, so there was kind of some, some, some things that happened for people in my life that maybe didn't know they were, they maybe weren't even actively trying to influence me that way. But, um, you know, if you are a little bit older and you're listening to this, like, don't forget about all the people that are, that are coming up. And, and if you've got something cool to share with them, um, do that. Cause it's very, very impactful. And it can, it can literally, in my case, alter someone's um, path in life. So at 16, I started flying. Um, I was a workaholic. So at 18, I was a civilian flight instructor. And so I got to teach people how to fly while I was finishing my undergraduate studies. And then fast forward a few years, um, 
I got picked up to fly for an airline, a small commuter airline. But at the same time, I got picked up to go to the Air Force. And I figured that going to the Air Force, that may not be an opportunity I get to do again. So I jumped into the Air Force and, um, you know, I conceptually wanted to be a fighter pilot. You know, it was something that I've always wanted to do. But I told myself that I was going to see how I liked flying upside down and with a with a mask on and pulling (laughs) G's and sitting on an ejection seat. And I was, as soon as I flew upside down one time, I just knew that that I was like, man, if I, I'm going to give it my all and I'm going to compete for that. And yeah, I got picked up to go to the fighter track and found myself, um, a couple of years later. Um, you know, now I'm a F-16 instructor pilot in the schoolhouse. So I get to teach, I get to teach the students that have, um, a lot of them like me worked their whole life to get here and their first flight in an F-16 is the culmination of a passion that they had that they, again, back to, they worked very hard to get there. Um, and they're very excited and it's very fun, but it's a lot of work still. Um, yeah. And so I get to, I get to live my dream now, um, on a daily weekly basis. Okay. So I, I, I remember my first solo flight and every, every pilot I'm sure can remember their first solo flight. But I have to ask you, F-16, your first flight, single-seater, right? So yeah. you've got all this power, you've worked, and it's like, now it's just me. What was that first flight like? Talk me through it, if you can remember. The emotions yeah, so you were going through. It is, um, I remember having my flight gear on and walking out to the airplane and at that point i in the f-16 specifically now granted i had quite a bit of flight time from the civilian world as well as um you know i was also an instructor pilot in a different aircraft before i went to the f-16 in the military so you know i probably had about two thousand hours which isn't a ton of time but when you when those hours are gained one hour at a time um it's a decent amount of flying so i I had some time under my belt, but I do remember very vividly walking out to the aircraft F-16 for the first time. And it wasn't, I wasn't fearful or I wasn't scared of flying solo because I had done it so many times before, but I just remember look kind of looking over my shoulder and thinking, uh, nobody's following me and they're actually going to let me do this. And then, you know, firing up the jet for the first time and not having an instructor look over my shoulder. Um, you know, so it was a very, you know, that's, it's one of the companies that I own is single seat mindset. Like you had hinted at, we give all of the the proceeds to a children's cancer nonprofit, but that single seat mindset is something that is learned, right? So even you and I aren't that much different and the people listening to this podcast, yes, maybe flying a fighter jet is difficult and it's difficult to get into that career field, but those are all learned behaviors. Um, and can be applied across businesses, life, person, you know, your own personality and getting in the jet and turn the jet on. There were a couple times where I had some, the hair stand up on the back of my neck because I was hearing, sensing and feeling things for the first time that I had not with somebody looking over my shoulder. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, that when you turn the, when you turn the radar on, at least in that jet, it would go through its, um, its initial power up and it would kind of bounce back and forth off of these stops as it's like checking itself for operation. And you can kind of feel it under the rudder pedals 
And I just remember thinking, what in the heck is that? And for like, for the first time, right. And it had been doing it already for, you know, a couple months at that point. So, or, a, or however long it took to, to solo, we don't, uh, F-16 pilots, you get maybe three, three flights with an instructor in a, in a two seat model. And then you are off to the races, uh, single seat by yourself. Um, fast forward, we, we taxi out, um, fighter pilots have all these different, you know, people call them gang signs, but they're these different signs that you, you flash. So, you know, as we're passing the tower, I knew that I had to put out my speed brakes and do the signs that I was supposed to do. And I just thought it was so cool. Cause I'm like, well, now I'm taxiing. The only thing that's holding me up is a takeoff clearance yeah. and then getting to the end of the runway, you know, the F 16 is a incredible machine. I'm very biased obviously, but it's, um, single seat, it's single engine. The, the canopy, the, uh, as it closes, when the canopy closes on the F 16, there are no metal structures to reinforce the canopy. So it is a huge thick piece of plexiglass and that plexiglass actually bows from the side. If you could imagine like where your shoulders are, it bows inwards towards your waist. So the, what that means is that sitting in the F-16, the visibility is, is fantastic. It actually, the only thing in your, in your focal view is the heads up display. And it's just two pieces of metal with a piece of glass that, you know, basically gives you the, the flight information in front of your face. So it's, it's an incredible experience sitting there. Cause you're, you're reclined at 30 degrees. You can smell the jet fuel. You've got your helmet on your mask on. Um, you know, you can put the, the microphone in cold mic. So all you hear is just that, you know, you know, this 36,900 pound machine just running underneath you and you don't see anything other than the heads up display because it, everything is behind you. Um, and then taking off for the first time, because I had flown jets up to that point, it wasn't like it was the first time. However, the incredible piece of it is when you're airborne, it's that holy crap moment. It's only me and it's me in this jet. And if something goes wrong, I have to figure it out. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's literally a mindset that you grow into because you're thrust like no pun intended, you're thrust into it. Um, and then just the, the jet is just an incredible jet. It's, um, you know, fly by wire. So there's computers that move the mechanical flight controls. Um, man, I could go on, I could go on for days. And the, and the classic thing, Jeff, is that people say, how do you know a fighter pilot is done talking about himself? Well, you ask him about his airplane and then they'll keep talking. So I'm just going to stop there. <laughs> well, I could listen for days, but I'm not sure the audience would want to for sure. Yeah. Okay. Incredible. Incredible. So something I've always wanted to do is to fly into aircraft. One is a Spitfire. Okay. So there's a there's a two seater one that's been adapted over here. So that's on my bucket list to do. And the other one okay. is to fly in a jet fighter aircraft. I have to be a two seater, yeah. of course. So that that's yeah. on my bucket list. But share with me your first flight in a jet aircraft. What was that like? Yeah. So I you know the 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 feeling is so surreal because the the climb rate of a fighter jet is so incredible. And so that the F 16 has one of the things that's, um, 
there's there's a certain fun to it, but the reason we do it is if something catastrophic happens, right? So the F-16 has one engine, so we have to practice these flame out landings. And so we do these things called an SFO. So if you're ever around, it's a simulated flame out landing. If you're ever around a, a military base, um, and even over there in the UK, if they have single engine jets, if you see them aggressively climbing and then aggressively diving at the runway, what they're doing is they're practicing their flame out landings. And so in the F-16, um, you know, by the end of the runway, you're, you're 300 knots before the, even the end of the runway is gone. So you're accelerating and, you know, on the departure, our normal departure airspeed is 350 knots. So we slow down to 300 to 350 knots in a fighter aircraft. And, you know, a lot of people were like, how do you handle a speed? Well, just like you would in a car, you know, you, it's, you just train your brain um, to handle those speeds. But the the most incredible like first flight type of thing in an F-16 in a fighter jet is when you are practicing these simulated flame out landings because you go from the just above the runway surface at 300 you know, plus miles an hour and then you lift the nose up you know, 20 to 30 degrees nose high and you go up to 10,000 feet in a matter of seconds and then you put the throttle in idle and you glide and we have the we have the glide ratio of essentially the space shuttle on re-entry so it's a very steep glide and it's the best elevator ride in the world (laughs) (laughs) straight up straight down (laughs) yeah and it's and the reason i say that it's the best and granted i'm biased it's way better than being an astronaut because astronauts are strapped in with all this crap on them they can't see very well there's tiny windows and they're not flying they're just along for the ride a fighter (laughs) pilot gets to actually control the the jet whereas the you know a space shuttle or something like that. It's just programmed to to fly this very fast trajectory. What's fascinating there, and I'll share this with the listeners, is that when I take people flying, the one question I'm always asked every single time, what happens if you have engine failure? And during pilot training as a student, I would say probably 80% of your training is dealing with what happens when something goes wrong because flying itself is easy right taking off and landing is the difficult part and then dealing with what occurs is the next part the actual flying part is quite easy okay right then what's the life of a fighter pilot like so what are the daily routines so as a it changes a little bit depending on where you are in your career. I'm approaching the end of, of a 20 year career, um, as a fighter pilot. And I would say the, the initial five years, the first five years are, I mean, put yourself on a treadmill and have somebody else control the speed. (laughs) (laughs) um, You're basically at a full sprint and then you have somebody pushing the the numbers higher and you're sprinting faster. So it's, it's an incredibly fun, um, experience. It's an incredible amount of work. I mean, I just look back and granted it would be fun to be a young fighter pilot again and and do it all over again, but I don't want to do it. It was so much work. Um, but that led to me where, you know, that led me to where I am now. So the daily routine, um, differs depending on maybe the fighter base that you're at, 
Um, but I would say generally speaking, it is very, very common practice to work 12 hour days. And then if you are scheduled for an upgrade or some sort of flight on Monday, that usually means that you're going to work at least one of your weekend days, which means that you work hard and you party hard. So on Friday, we get together and have, um, you know, some libations to take the edge off. And so Saturday you're recovering and Sunday you're working again. So it's, it's very fast paced. It's as a, as a new guy, as you can attest, learning to fly, there is a, a mountain of information that you have to know. And when you fly, like you said, the flying piece is easy. It's the mountain of information that you need to make decisions while you're flying, whether that's an emergency procedure. Um, in our case, we fly fighter jets to support and defend the US. So we have to know the tactics and all the new beeps and squeaks that go along with new equipment and bombs and missiles. Um, so, you know, a lot of people, I can put them in an F-16 simulator, Jeff, and for you, it would be very easy. I could say, you're going to hold your flight path marker here. You're going to fly this airspeed and you would, I would be willing to bet within two, two tries, you would land the F-16 and the, and the simulator is very, um, very high definition. So that's the easy part. But then now you're airborne and you're going four to five to 800 miles an hour and something goes wrong. Well, what do you do? And so that's, I think, the biggest part about being a new guy, a new fighter pilot. And this directly applies to business, entrepreneurship across the board. When you're new, you have to take a lot of action to learn because you're the new guy and you're learning. And what does that mean, Jeff? Like you said, you're learning through failure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, you're, 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 you're training there. Um, when you started flying, um, is, Hey, if you get this failure in the aircraft, that doesn't mean that you are a failure as a person. That means that we have to learn from this and, and learn how to overcome that. So it's so applicable to all walks of life. Um, and I would say failure dominates the conscious mind of a young fighter pilot because you are failing so much every day because everything is so new and it's so fast. But if you can get past that, it's so fun. We'll, we will talk about failure and the mindset of failure a little later on in the program. Okay. For now, I want to rewind a little because you say in the first five years, there's a huge amount of work and you're working 12 hours a day. Now, that doesn't mean you're flying 12 hours a day. Correct. So what is work? What is the work of a fighter pilot? So it's, it's kind of a misnomer, right? If you've, if you've watched any fighter pilot movie like Top Gun, you know, they go in and they jump in their aircraft and they go fly around and they come back and they're, you know, in, in the shower stalls, high fiving and making fun of each other. And they go play volleyball. And I'm like, you mean it's not like that in real life? There is not a single day that I've ever done that. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, for every, every one hour that we fly in a fighter jet, there's an immense amount of planning. Um, and then an additional on the back end debrief. So we very simply, we plan, execute debrief. The execution phase is the fun phase, right? That's when you're executing your plan. However, the yep. planning starts the day prior 
And depending on the complexity of the enemy that you're fighting or the mission that you're doing, it could be that you are studying and or preparing for your flight the next day. And then the flight the next day, there's a, there's a good hour and a half to two hour pre-briefing. Then you go fly for an hour to an hour and a half and you come back and you debrief for a number of hours. So that's just flying. And again, it's a misnomer that pilots only do flying because if you're an officer in the military, you're also going to have some other responsibilities, whether that's as a flight commander, a director of operations, you're going to be running the flight schedule, maybe the chief of scheduling. Um, you know, there's a lot of secret information. So there's, there's people that work in the back on, you know, computers. So you'll have a desk job, potentially you'll be leading people. And there's, there's ancillary things that, um, as fighter pilots, we call it queep. And I don't know if that's a mixture of like creep, like you see is mission creep, but queep is not good. It's just something that we deal with. We know it's a requirement and we do it because that supports the thing that we really like to do, which is flying fighter jets. So within that 12 hours in the day, you may, you know, the start taxi takeoff, maybe 30 to 40 minutes, your hour to hour and a half flight. And then the shutdown is maybe 20. So maybe two total hours spent in a fighter jet. And then after your debrief, if you're flying the next day, you're probably finishing that debrief and preparing for the next day. So it's, it is, um, if you can envision walking up to a, um, maybe like a fire engine that has going to put out a fire and like sticking your mouth on their hose and then them turning the water on full blast. That's what it feels like a lot of times is you're drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. 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 I, I, I remember that in, in my flying days and when we were flying too, just as we were on final coming into land, my instructor, when I was getting to the end, my instructor would start talking to me and he's trying to fill my mental buckets to, to, <laughs> to concentrate and, and that. So, yeah, I remember that very well, very well. Thank you, Chris. Yes, that's my flying instructor. He'll be listening for sure. <laughs> so, uh, in your experience, what does it take or what's the toughest part of becoming a fighter pilot and what's the failure rate and why do you think people fail? So, I, you know, I think one of the things that's, that's overlooked is that when somebody becomes a fighter pilot, it has taken years of preparation to even get there. So that starts at, you know, uh, 12 to 18 years old. Those are some very formidable years to, that can either help or hinder you, right? So if you slacked off in high school, in primary education, you got bad grades, you're now going to have to overcome that in college. And if you didn't get good grades in college, you may not get accepted into a military program to even get in. And then once you get in, if you're lazy or if something happens in your life that derails you, there's a finite amount of time where you need to be hyper-focused on doing the best you can, studying and applying yourself. So there are so many different little hoops that you can mess up along the way. I would say the simple ones are if you get into drugs and the wrong crowd early on, that's going to derail you. That's going to ruin your chances of success right off the bat. Because when you go through your medical screening and all of that stuff, even be, as you're applying, it's very intense. So if you've, if you have drugs and medical history in your background, that's probably going to disqualify you before you even start. So there's, there's a number of, um, hurdles that even as a young kid, I didn't know would really, really affect that decision. 
um, but that kind of fell into place and having the right people around me to at least coach me in a way to where I wasn't going to be, you know, jumping off into the Grand Canyon and ruining all those chances. But then once you are actually in the program itself, um, by the time, so you go through, you get the selection process is very intense. Um, and then once you get selected, then you have to make it through the officer training essentially, which is, it's basically boot camp. And then after that, you go through um, flight screening, which is essentially in a, in a small propeller-driven aircraft. To um, It's a cheaper aircraft to operate than the bigger jets, obviously, so that w- they can kind of figure out if people are even cut out for it in the first place. And then by the time you get to undergraduate pilot training, you've gone through so much. You've overcome so many obstacles, and there's still so much ahead of you, right? Yeah. And then that is the school. That's the, that's the main crux of getting selected to go the fighter track. I would say, generally speaking, once you get to that phase, which it's in the T6 uh, Texan II, so it's a two-seat aircraft. It's got ejection seats. It's got a jet engine with a propeller on the front, so it's a turboprop aircraft. Um, it's a little go-kart. It's an amazing little airplane. But in that program, which is only about six months, you've worked your whole life to get there, in that six months, you have to stand out and be part of the top 10%. Usually, I'll caveat that with every once in a while, there's a number one, two or three graduate that wants to go fly a different aircraft other than fighters. But generally speaking, about 10% get selected to go the fighter track. Then once you're in the fighter track, you are recompeting again for an f- actual fighter jet because you're not in a fighter jet yet. You're just in a fighter jet trainer. Um so yeah, it's, it's very competitive. Um, I think it can be competitive in some wrong ways based on personality. And I wish that I could say that I didn't mess that up along the way, but I'd be lying to you. Um, but yeah, very competitive. Um, you know, kind of the people that, that want to go in that direction that are willing to, to fight to get there. Cause it is a fight, um, with yourself primarily because you're competing with yourself to, to, you know, get to the top of the heap while you're in pilot training so that you can go that route. What do you mean by that competing with yourself? Yeah. So it is, um, clearly I'm a big mindset guy. I have a business called single seat mindset. Um, the reason you're competing with yourself is as I highlighted, you've worked so hard to get there that if you don't manage your own schedule, if you don't know how to recharge yourself, you'll burn out. And in our case, like in the F-16, if you run out of gas, you'll flame out and you'll crash, right? You'll burn out. And that's very common within, unfortunately, if you say I'm a type A person, it has a negative connotation because it insinuates some other things. However, if you can leverage humility in with your personality, you can become a very a powerful force in business or in life. And so I think early on, a lot of times I was the bad part of my type A personality. The thing that saved me is that I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I lived pretty lean. And I, if I needed to sleep, I would just go to bed. Um, some other guys didn't have that um, luxury, I would say. But the other piece of it is on Saturday, when you're tired, spending two to four hours on every weekend to study, same thing on Sunday, you know, maybe going to church or whatever, recharging a little bit, but then getting back to it and just staying disciplined throughout that was very difficult, um, but something that I always did and it paid, it paid off for me. 
Yeah, I think all of those lessons, everything you said there, are equal to people in business. Certainly people who are running business or own a business and the same lessons. And we'll talk about those in a moment. So you've been a fighter pilot for 20 years. At what age does a fighter pilot end their career as a fighter pilot on average? And generally, what do most fighter pilots do for a living afterwards? So I'm, a, I'm about 17 years in and about, um, you know, not all fighter pilots do go to 20 years, but I would say if, if you stay in past your commitment, which is about 12 years, because when you get selected to go through pilot training, you incur a 10 year service commitment once you graduate. So you'll have about 12 years into the service. I think that's made by design because the, the forces that be want you to feel like you're already past the halfway mark and they want to keep that talent, which they're struggling to do right now, unfortunately. Um, but I would say most, um, you're going to get to, to get a retirement. You have to go at least 20 years. And I would say a lot of guys will go 20 years, maybe plus or minus, or sorry, plus maybe an extra year, um, depending on what they're doing. And then again, these are just very general, generally speaking, um, because they're already a pilot, they will generally go to fly in a pilot position. Um, a lot of them fly for the airlines or for, um, air carriers such as FedEx, UPS. Um, so a lot of them will continue flying in some capacity. Okay. And what about you? What's the plan for you? Yep. So, um, a number of years ago, I started a, a passive, so I'm the active partner, but I started a passive apartment investing company. So I have a, um, a real estate company that I've been running for a number of years. And then I've got this other company where we write books, but you know, we give the money away and based on the way things have been going, when I retire, I would like to, um, and I'm not completely altruistic, Jeff. I think anybody that says that's lying, but I get a lot of pleasure out of, um, you know, sharing fighter pilot stories through our book series, single seat wisdom. I get a lot of enjoyment helping families that have, um, less means than we do that are having kids going through these, um, just traumatic cancer, uh, treatments. Um, and, you know, I do have my airline transport pilot certification. I have been officially like hired by an airline. I haven't flown for them yet because I'm having too much fun being a fighter pilot. And when I retire, I don't see the need to spend at least 40% of my time away from my family and kids when I already have a business that I can run and I can be more involved with my, my children and my wife and, and life and, and maybe help people a different way. And I'm not bashing airline pilots because that's a very honorable and, and good profession. Um, it may not fit my world. And I, but I'm also a little bit of a, um, I'm, I, I'm a little bit different than most fighter pilots, the track that most take. Okay. So you've mentioned your books. So let's talk about your books, uh, single seat wisdom. I I've ordered them and I, I told you before the show, five minutes before you and I got on air, the book arrived. So I haven't had chance to read it. And I was saying to my wife, I said, I've got my dream podcast guest, you know, a Pfizer pilot. I've ordered this book. It's not here yet. And like uh, five minutes before. Anyway, so your book, Single Seat Wisdom. 
let's go for a summary here. So what is it about? Who is it for? And why do you think you were the person to write it or pull it all together? So, um, Jeff, those are all great questions. I would, the first thing I want to say is that it's not my book. Um, it's a book that I compiled with our business through stuff that I knew prior to this point, right? So this was actually the, the first volume one of single seat wisdom was our maybe fourth book that we published. Um, but this book series, the reason why it took off was because it's not all about me and we can talk about this, um, later on in the podcast, but having gone through and used experiences, whether that was as a fighter pilot or business owner, and specifically how I crashed in my young thirties, mentally crashed. And, um, I, I got a lot of very painful experiences, but very good life lessons out of that. And so now I found myself owning businesses, already writing books and COVID took off and ripped through the world. And it was, that's where single seat mindset started that company. And I was giving back to the young fighter pilots that were struggling, whether that was a weekly message, what have you. And I started approaching the fighter pilots that I know. And I said, Hey, when you retire, you're probably just going to go to the airlines or you're going to, you're going to do your own thing. And your, your story's going to die. Would you trust me being that I've already published books? I own businesses. Would you trust me to take your story and compile it with 19 other fighter pilots. So each one of these books has 20 stories from 20 separate fighter pilots. And we can make a book that's a compilation book that is to give back in multiple ways. So you're giving back via your story, which is timeless. There's some significance to that, which again, we can talk about later, but it's a timeless thing to do. Um, it's difficult because you're putting yourself out there. Oh, by the way, I would like you to contribute X amount of dollars to this children's cancer nonprofit to be part of this program. Uh, and then I pledge to you that single seat mindset, the company will give all of any proceeds that we give or get will give away. And so it was much more than just a book about slice because I don't even want to read a book like that about me. I don't want to read my own biography and I don't want to have to even write that. This book is about just the perspectives and life advice learned from the fighter pilot world. So all of the authors are fighter pilots and why that's been so powerful is that each chapter, there's 20 of them, there's 20 separate chapters in every book. And each one of those chapters like you have seen Jeff with these 11 secrets of success that you're, you know, you're compiling and you're seeing, you start to see these trends, but you can see them quickly because the book is, you know, you can sit down and read a whole chapter in 10 minutes. So you're not reading a novel. Even if you don't like reading books, you can sit down and read a chapter and learn something from it. And then the fighter pilots wisdom is summed up at the end of each chapter. So they are practical and valuable life lessons learned from what I would say the third dimension in a fighter jet, right? So it's just a different spin and it's not necessarily, you don't have to be a pilot. You don't have to be a fighter pilot. In fact, most aren't, but how do I take this lesson and apply it to business, entrepreneurship, my life, uh, you know, my marriage, my kids, there's so many different life lessons that come out of these. And all I do up front was I just basically pitched the idea. The first book was very difficult to do just because I'm getting I'm asking people for money. I'm asking them to do work. And then I'm having to follow up to get it published on time. The second one was a lot easier. And now I already have people signed up for the third one and I haven't even launched the program. 
So kind of learning that lesson, you know, the, the first five years, we're year three right now, there's a lot of upfront work, but the book itself is, I would say, if I was to explain the demographic that it is best for, that we get the best feedback for, that it's probably the most impact is probably the uh, 16 year old to 29 year old age demographic. Now, the problem with that, Jeff, is I tried to hone in our ideal client is people like you read it and you like it. And now we're like way out of me. I read these stories and I like them. I'm biased. My dad reads them, you know, a young kid reads them. So that's been probably the most difficult part of the business aspect is finding our ideal client because it's so wide right now. Yeah, I would imagine the 16, you're basing on feedback that you receive. So yeah. I would imagine that the, the age group that you're looking at are more likely to give feedback than older guys like me, whether they enjoy it or not. Yeah, yeah whether they enjoy it or not, because um, generational thing with communication online and stuff like that, there is still a huge, huge, huge gap. So I think yeah. it's applicable to anyone, anyone. So the charity, yeah. tell me about the charity and why did you choose this one? So the Anna Schindler Foundation is, it was started by my aunt and uncle, um, Polly and Joe Schindler. So my dad's younger sister, um, they had um, some kids and one of them was named Anna. And Anna was pulling nails with a pair of pliers as they were reciting their house and the pliers slipped and she hit her liver part of her stomach and it ruptured a cancerous cell in her liver and they ended up in the hospital and that started their 12 hours on 12 hours off nightmare life cycle while Anna was battling hepatoblastoma. So I believe that's liver cancer. Don't quote me on that if you're a doctor or somebody smarter than me. Um, so she basically went through this life-changing, life-altering overnight, right? Where, where mom and dad are now 12 hours on, 12 hours off in the hospital, living this nightmare. And I very, very close, either right before or right after she turned seven, she was getting better. And the next day she died, she passed away. And the to see all of that and to see that just life shattering event in some, in a, in a couple's life, my aunt and uncle, and then to see them start a foundation, a 501 C. So a charity foundation, um, and to see them buy land and start building these homes where families that come in with these problems, these, um, these, uh, kids that have cancer that are going through this treatment, they can escape the hospital the smells, the beeps, the sounds, the people in lab coats all the time, and they can escape to a home that is theirs while they're going through that trauma. To see them do that, it was so empowering and so so incredible. And so they've they have two right now. They've they have land and they're building four more units um, for these families because they're always full. I mean, people get sick all the time, and these families come in. And they're, they're, they're luxury homes for these families to stay in, Jeff. They're amazing. They've got, you know, high-speed internet. Um, everything's brand new, laid out. Uh, it just money and support flows in for these families in a, in a very dark time in their life. I think it's incredible when people experience extreme adversity like that and then come out with something completely magical 
that they never perhaps yeah. would have done beforehand. And there's plenty of examples on previous yeah. episodes here on the secrets of the sex like that. And it always enlightens me. I, I shall put yeah. it there. And, and I can understand why you would be so attached and you will drive in pulling fighter pilots to make this book happen and putting the arm around the back and getting some money out of them to get it all going and the effort. May I ask you, how much have you raised so far with your books? So after our second book was published, we just passed $30,000, which is not an enormous amount of money. I, I was shooting for 100000 This but... is an enormous amount of money. I so much respect. You know, I read that earlier today. And uh, I thought, wow, we have to get that on the show. But you're aiming for 100,000. Slice, it doesn't end. It doesn't end at 30,000. It will never end in your lifetime. You will continue. And I know, my friend, you will surpass way beyond 100,000. I know that because I can see the traits within you. Absolutely. So congratulations. Awesome. Keep up the good work. I'm glad I've invested in the books. But when I saw all of the profits go to this charity, you know, I want to buy everyone that you do and make a contribution too. So that's on its way. So slice. We haven't talked about that yet. Now, every fighter pilot is given a call sign. Mm -hmm. uh, whether you like it or not, I understand you have to adopt it. So yeah. what is the meaning of slice? How was this made up for you? What does it mean? So it's, over time, I um, have been beat down by life so much that I finally am starting to practice what people might call humility, and I'm still very bad at it. Um, <laughs> but life has a way of dealing you these life lessons that kind of, if you're not a humble person, they, they can push you to be humble or you can, you can fight back. And I fought back many years, but this, my call sign was learned from a very painful experience. Um, an event that was a, a failure. Um, not me, I wasn't a failure, but the event was a failure. And I was, I was an early, pretty young fighter pilot. I was at my first combat assignment and um, I was flying F-16s in Japan, which was an incredible, life-changing, amazing experience um, to fly over, you know, that part of the world. And I was, it was probably my third or fourth or fifth flight as a new guy. And <clears throat> usually as a new guy, you're just trying so diligently to not mess up because you know that a lot of times your call sign is going to be from something that you messed up on or you failed or something that you did stupid. And in my case, I was on a training sortie where I was fighting an instructor pilot who was uh, way better of a fighter pilot than me. And he's an instructor and he's much more experienced, but I broke a training rule and pointed his aircraft for too long while I was shooting missiles. And we had a very close pass. So um, I consider it a win. Um, because I'm, I'm a classic <laughs> reframer and I'm a glass half full kind of guy because there were other names that had been proposed for me um, that were far worse. But they said I tried to slice my instructor in half with my jet. And why that fit is I was in our, our squadron mascot was a samurai. So the samurai sword um, kind of fit the motif and, and 
you know, I've, I've grown to like it just out of, because I don't have a reason, uh, or I don't have an option to not like it. Um, cause that's what was given to me as a call sign. Um, but I have yet to meet another fighter pilot with the call sign slice. And sometimes you'll run into another fighter pilot, whether your call signs fire or Haas or, you know, Maverick or whatever it happens to be. But, um, I'm not saying that like I'm an original cause I can't verify that, but there, I haven't met another fighter pilot with the call sign slice. You're like Tigger. You're the only one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, right. We've spoken about being fed with a fire hose. Now this happens in business, perhaps not the same way. But I know particularly on uh, with new businesses, uh, entrepreneurs, very quickly their mental bucket gets full and they experience burnout, as you were talking about earlier, uh, information overload. So based on your experience, because I, I guess your instructors know they're feeding you with a fire hose, and they want to yep. find out the points where your mental bucket gets full, just how much mm. can you take? Yeah. But what tips do you have for this for entrepreneurs? So having gone through the, the fighter jet world, but then also starting my first business, the, the thing that I would, the thing that if I, somebody could tell me in the first year is don't fear the fact that you are going to feel burnt out and that you are going to be, you know, it's going to feel like you're a hamster on a little hamster wheel, just running. And, and some days, some weeks, even a month may feel like you get nowhere. Um, I think that's part of the learning process. Um, it is painful, right? Because that first year is just so volatile, whether you're starting a business, whether you're starting something new, even this book. I mean, Jeff, there were so many times there five times my website crashed because I'm a fighter pilot. I don't build websites and I don't know what the heck I was doing. So in that first year, I rebuilt single seat mindset five times. And there was even a point where I threw my hands up in the air and I was like, you know what? I don't think, I don't think the world needs this because I don't need this. This is ruining my life. But in that first year, um, whether that was in business, whether that was as a fighter pilot, it's just the most volatile. And so I would say, even though you may fear some of that, just know that's part of the game, especially, especially if you are growing or doing something that's out of the norm or that's difficult or that's new, as, especially as you know, in business, um, at least in my circles, there was no zero fighter pilots starting a real estate company that onboarded passive investors, brand new. So for the first year, it was just the looks of people going, what the heck are you doing, right? And so, and then writing a book on top of that, Jeff, and having single seat investor that book and handing that out and they're like, what are you doing? Like, you know, and there's just gonna be a lot of people that tell you no or, and all that kind of stuff. And if you have the drive, you know you're on the right track that first year um, don't fear the fact that it's just going to be literally a fire hose where you're learning. Um, take those lessons and like we do in the fighter jet world and a lot of business, good business owners will do this. They may call it something different, but plan, execute, debrief. Those three simple things. If you've planned and you've started executing your plan, you need to, at the end of every day, be debriefing yourself on what happened. You do that in the, in the aviation world as well as a fighter, as, as we do in, in the pilot world, debrief what happened that day, 
the next morning when you wake up, tweak your plan. If you have a plan that you've put in place and it, you're getting the same results at the end of the day, if they're negative or positive and you're not tweaking that plan, then you're not debriefing, you're not learning those lessons. That's where you're going to run into problems. And so one quick story about that early on in the first year, I remember driving home. And so this was, I had been a fighter pilot for a number of years. I'd been an instructor, but this was my first year of being a business owner. And I was so angry, Jeff, I was gripping the steering wheel. I didn't have the music on. I was just in silence and I was so angry and I didn't know why, because I had been sprinting so much that I hadn't actually stopped and said, well, why am I angry? And it turns out I had no business being an accountant and I had no business being a property manager. And as soon as I offloaded those two things, life got better, but I debriefed myself. And so that was kind of the lesson that presented itself is that during that first year, I fired 80% of the people that I hired because they were the wrong people for my business and where we were going. And that's just part of part of it. You're just going to learn a lot and it's going to be volatile. And then after that first year, you'll do some more learning, but it's fine. There's, there's a few lessons I want to pick up there. One very quick one is hire slowly, fire quickly. Yeah. <laughs> I did yeah, not I can do that. See, I, I can that see you smiling. I could, I could see that. Yeah, he's my buddy. He'll do well. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the other thing is a metaphor I use with lots of people that I mentor in that starting off a new business, I liken it to an aircraft about to take off because on okay. takeoff, you give it 100% throttle. Absolutely everything you've got you rotate you up and it's only when you're airborne you can start to wind back and relax and that's what it's like starting a business and lots of people want a successful business but then i ask them i prepared to pay the price and that's everything you've got to get airborne and it's not until you're airborne and cruising that you can pull the throttle back yeah. Burnout. I've had burnout. And this is where the, the debrief thing is so important. I did what you did. I had my normal day job, which was way more than 12 hours. And then I used to wake up. So I used to go to bed about 11 p.m., wake up about 3 a.m., get up and write until 7 a.m. That's when I wrote my book. Because my problem at that time was I didn't think writing was part of my job. I thought it was something I had to do outside of my job. So I did that for a year. I wrote my first book and then complete burnout. I had memory loss. I was super angry and I didn't know why. You know, and mm. I, I went to the hospital. They sent me to the um, to the doctors, they sent me to the hospital. I had scans and they were trying to find out what was wrong. And that was exactly what was wrong. I didn't mm. debrief. And that's such an important thing to do. And debrief, what we mean by this is understand what's going on for you, understand what's going in your life, understand what worked, what didn't work. And as you said, tweak, tweak. Yeah. Now, I, I read a quote from you earlier today in, uh, in some research I was doing. And this is what you say verbatim, right? I have, I have winning or learning experiences. 
I don't fail. I learn. So you said earlier, oh, yeah, I'm a classic reframer. Now, I know what that means because I am too. But there's many people listening, probably thinking, what the heck's a reframer? What's he talking about? And this is so important to what we are talking about. So I'm going to bounce that one back to you right now, Dom. Yeah, so I think that the idea of if you've heard the I'm a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of mindset, I'm a glass half full kind of person. So anytime anything happens, I ask myself, what can, what can I learn from this and how can we grow from this? So if you look at COVID, when COVID hit the world, that's where single seat mindset, that company started during COVID. So when everybody's looking over here, watching the stock market fall and their life crumble down around them, I turn the opposite direction and I say, well, what are people not doing and what, what needs to happen right now? Because I'm an action taker and that's just how I'm wired. There are, you've highlighted it, very many things that can lead, lead you to success if you're an action taker, but then you can also burn out, right? Which is what you did because Jeff, I did the same thing. When I wrote my first book, I was starting a real estate company. I was working, you know, 12, 14 hour days as a fighter pilot. And I would wake up at three and four in the morning and I would write for several hours to get the dang book done. And then I burnt out and crashed just like you. So these stories are the more people I talk to, the more I realize we go through these same life things and you shouldn't fear that because that is a big life lesson and you are a much better person for the world and you're giving back now because of that. And I think the thing that I didn't understand about my personality to start, and I really like your, your takeoff analogy with the airplane where you're hundred percent throttle because I love, I love being a founder. I have the energy and the ideas to get something off the ground Jeff, what I don't like doing, I do not like being a CEO. I'll do it if I need to. I don't like reading reports. I'll do it if I need to. I don't like doing accounting. So that was something that I didn't learn. And I learned after the first year of my first business. But now that I'm on business number three, I go, no, I don't. I can do that. I can do a lot of things, but I'm not going to. And I think it's just learning, learning those things like you talked about the that quote that you read, I wish that was my original thought, but I think that's a spinoff of Nelson Mandela's um, winning and learning experiences. But mine is, I don't fear failure. In fact, failure is painful, but usually it's pretty short lived. And if you have a six month, if you have like a six month view, you go, Hey, six months from now, am I even going to, what am I going to learn from this? Didn't you laugh it off actually? So it's crazy to hear because I didn't know that about you. I didn't know that you went through a very similar you know, like boom bust cycle, like the stock market where you boomed. And then, you know, you were in other people's eyes, you're successful, Jeff, you're this businessman, you're this, you have written your own book. That's a number one bestseller, all of these things. Right. And that highlights something that I hinted at when we started, which was defining success and then the significance that it has. And there's a huge difference and we can pause and talk about something else, or we can get into that if you'd like. Okay. I want to stay with reframing for a moment. Okay. Because, okay, um, I'm, I'm going to rewind on something you said to get closer to this reframing because you're a fighter pilot. You've got three businesses. You're writing a book and people are going, hey, what are you doing, Tom? So there's naysayers, right? Yep. Did anyone say to you, 
you're not the person to pull this book together. That book will never work. It will never get done. Yes. The thing is, though, is that <laughs> I'm, I'm Irish, Jeff, and so I'm very stubborn, and it's good and bad. And when I commit to something, it I will literally kill my not kill myself like commit suicide but i will literally die trying because i'm so committed to that so when i committed to this book it wasn't like i woke up one day and was like oh i'm gonna write a book with 20 fighter pilot stories no it was a couple of years honing this idea figuring it out and then when i said these are the dates these are the timelines this is when i'm going to publish it it's go time I don't have any time to listen to people that are naysayers because I have too many people championing, you know, being champions and going, Hey, yeah, this is going to be great. So, but you bring up a good point. You could have 400 people tell you that you are the next Elon Musk or name any billionaire, right? Which arguably, I don't know if that's something to aspire to just to make a lot of money, right? Cause you can still be a failure, but you could have all those people. And then there's one person that walks up to you and says, you suck. that ruins your day yeah so it's just a learned behavior i think of going okay well tell me why i suck right and just versus just name calling versus just slander because that's all it's so easy to do nowadays and it's like hey i'm sorry you feel that way i'm not getting that feedback from the majority of the people i'm doing and people aren't used to hearing that right they're not used to they're just used to just throwing garbage out and it's like, well, okay, you're, you're a villain and, and I'm, I have a bunch of heroes that are going to write stories and I'm going to be the guide that helps them do that. And if you're going to be a victim and a villain and bounce back and forth between those two modalities, I don't want, like, I'm just, I can't listen to you because you're not providing construction, constructive feedback. You're just slandering me. It's not helpful. Okay. This, you keep dropping these bombs. And they are so <laughs> valuable, and I just want to go back and and cover them. So first of all, there can be four hundred people telling you you're awesome, and there's one p- person says you're not. What dominates our thought is that one person, and people get caught up on that. And then, then it's I don't have time in my life for people who are going to tell me that it can't be done. And you're stubborn. But what came out of that is this burning desire. Nothing is going to put you off achieving what you want to achieve. And in all successful people that I've interviewed, this burning desire is dominant. Because if you don't have this burning desire, the reason why you're doing it, that's one of the reasons people give up halfway through. So you Mm. obviously had a burning desire to fly, and that's what kept you awake at night and working. However, I want to come back to 400 people say, hey, you're awesome, and one person says, no, this will never work. You're not the person to do it. And, and people give up at that point. And I want to share an experience, because you've brought it up, about what happened to me with this book, my first book. And it was in the idea stage. And at this point, I'm working for another company. I didn't have my own company, although I did have a burning desire to have my own company. 
and I was just waiting for the time to be right. The time wasn't right at this point, but I had the idea for this book. And I went to the director of the company and I said, I have this idea for a book. This is how it will work. This is what it will do. It's about key performance indicators. There, it, it, there's a need for it in the industry, I believe. And he said, no, I don't think anybody would read a book like that. I think it would be dull. I think it would be boring. I don't think there's a need for it. And more than that, I don't think you are the person to write it. Okay, now I've got the benefit of seeing your face here. <laughs> and it's, oh, right, okay. So, so we talk about reframing. This is what I did. So let's imagine 400 people say, yeah, that'd be awesome, Jeff, and this one person tells me that. That would put off a lot of people. And the way I reframe, and I think this is important, is that I thought, okay, I understand where this director is. I understand his mindset. Now, the reason, I'm doing the debrief strategy here, the reason he said those things was because he's only spent a small amount of time with me explaining about the book idea. So he doesn't understand it to the same depth that I yeah. do. He doesn't understand really the, the, the field that I'm working in like I do. And he doesn't understand that when he said, I'm not the person to write the book, he doesn't understand my grit and determination like I do. And based on that, if I were him, I would probably have said the same things. So therefore, because he doesn't have the knowledge that I have, his comments are not valid to me. So I'll thank him for him. Thank you very much. So, so here's what happened. I didn't write the book for the company. <laughs> and <laughs> surprise, surprise, huh? They didn't want it. They were not ready for it. So what happened about six months later, I left the company and I set up my own company. This was in 1999. I then went ahead and wrote the book. But I didn't have 400 people saying, hey, yeah, it was the other way around. Most people were saying, I, I, I don't think that's a really good idea. And I said, you know, I think the industry needs it and I'm going to write it. And I'd never written a book before. So I wrote it. I'm now on record as the most successful author in history with that book on the subject of key performance indicators and business strategies. You know what all these naysayers are saying now? What a great idea, Jeff. I told you right, remember? <laughs> but the, yeah. point, the point is about this reframing. It's about understanding where you are and when there are naysayers, they might not understand where you are or your burning desire. So that reframing is so important. And that's why people say, I never fail, I just learn. And there's lots of famous people in history with that. I think Thomas Edison, he, he learned 5,000 times to uh, yeah. get his patent yeah. rights on the, on the light bulb. He didn't invent the yeah. light bulb, by the way. That's what I, my kids told me that. Yeah, it was a guy called Swan. And huh. uh, he lives in Newcastle here in England. He invented it. And then huh. Thomas Edison patented it. And that's ah. what. That's what Thomas Edison was good at, 
with uh, gotcha. getting patents and stuff. Yeah. Okay, so now we've said that then, in your experience, why is it you think that entrepreneurs fail to gain traction on their goals? So there's this, there's this desire that you hinted at, there's this purpose, there's this energy behind what they're doing. And I, I think you articulated it very well, which is if, if your success is very, if, if it points back to you only, right. And I've made this mistake before, and this is where I, where my big life crashes. This is where stories come to an end. This is where your life, like your life story comes to a halt. This is where midlife crises happen. It's when your success is defined and it is not significant. It is not timeless. It doesn't have something deeper than just that one thing. So the easy one for me to pluck out is, Hey, if I buy a, an apartment building for $10 million, we renovate it. And in three years I sell it for $20 million. I'm successful, right? Well, in that one venture I am, but if that, if that 20, if I take my winnings and I go to Vegas and then I find myself living under the street doing fentanyl and drugs, that's not successful. And so I think that the idea of that is, is that a worthwhile endeavor? Like you said, Jeff, it depends on the person, the why behind it. What significance is an extra $7 million going to do in your life? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to give half of it to charity? Are you going to buy an aircraft and fly people around like you do and give share the love of flight? And so if I look back at, you know, my young thirties, when I had my big mental crash, I had defined success as be a fighter pilot, be an instructor, do, go on these deployments, be a flight commander. And I had checked all of those boxes off out of my life. So in my professional life from the outside, people are like, Oh, slice has got, he's a fighter pilot instructor. Like he's successful. Well, I was dying inside. And like you said, I didn't know what the heck was going on. And I remember being dressed to step out and fly one day and the fighter pilot sitting at the desk that runs the operation looked at all of us and said, are you guys ready to fly? And it was the only time in my whole life that I said, no. And I said, Nope, I don't know. Just like you, I don't know what's going wrong, but there's some things, there's some nuts and bolts in my mind that came loose and I need to get that stuff squared away. And so I think what prevents a lot of people from being successful um, in that case, I had broken down so far that, and I was not a humble person. I was not being the person I needed to be, but I was just broken to the point where I had to finally admit something is wrong. And when you, when you look at these, the classic group of 400 people championing you, and then the one that naysays you or the naysayers, which are everywhere, especially in your case, when you left that group, you now have everybody telling, you no. You have to be able to pivot and have some people behind you that you do trust and you can bounce ideas off of. And my experience with that is that I had um, somebody tell me that I was a class 10 narcissist. And so it made me pause (laughs) and it made me pause. And here's, here's the, here's the tricky part, Jeff, is that if you have 400 people telling you you're awesome, and then one person tells you that you're not the tricky part is what if they're right? So that's what I asked myself. I'm like, well, what if I am a narcissist? So luckily I had already gone through my mental crash and all that stuff. So I went back to my counselor and I said, holy crap, I think I'm a narcissist. I think that like, I've been doing this, this, and this I'm, I'm a narcissist. And he goes, 
no, nah, you're fine. He goes, narcissists can't actually admit that they're narcissists. And I was like, oh. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay, okay. Maybe I do have, if you want to, the, the dark side is narcissistic traits. I do want my company to do well. And I want the cover of my book to look good. And so there's that piece, but I don't think that's narcissistic. I think that's, I want my stuff to look good because I want it to be a good product. So those types of, you know, life lessons, that you learn along the way that are painful, right? Because that feedback came from somebody very close to me. And that is where you can get really taken down a notch is, you know, your director, Jeff, I don't know what kind of um, relationship you had with him or her, but hearing that from somebody close can really derail you. However, your passion, your purpose, like you've hinted at, if you've defined success and it is selfish success, it will almost always crash and burn. Even if you achieved the goal, you'll crash. So have some significance behind it. So if you want to talk about significance for me, and I'm smiling because it gives me so much joy that we we did this, but these single seat wisdom books that were very difficult to do initially, and now we're starting to gain some traction at year three. I my kids, my kids can take all of my real estate and just completely fight over it and throw it all away a day after I die. And all of it can be gone all of that wealth just completely gone. Poof. My kids are not going to be able to travel around the world and pull these books off of your shelf. Specifically, you're in the UK. They don't even know who you are right now. They're not going to be able to steal your book. And so that's a timeless, that's a timeless thing that has significance. And those books, even after I'm gone, I'm going to set it up in a way that my kids can't take that money. It's going to continue to go to charity. So I think that that big thing, that was a huge life lesson for me in that first year of single seat mindset as a business is how do I make this a company where it hurts me, right? And I'm, I'm like very focused on money as a business owner. You should be, but how do I still make money, but then just boomerang it back out for a good reason that kind of takes the edge off of it. And that's where it really started to take off. Jeff was when that, ha I remember that day driving home, I was like, all right, I'm not keeping money from this business. We're giving it all away. And I just, it's giving me chills even right now saying that because I'm like, all right, I'm doing it. And then I'm going to say it and I'm going to publish it on our website and I'm going to tell all the authors and it just changed everything. So significance would be the one word is that why do people that are entrepreneurs fail? Like you said, what gets you rolling out of bed in the morning when there's fire and brimstone raining down around you? Are you going to be able to continue to put your boots on and go to work and get the job done? And if not, like you said, maybe your plan was not, it didn't have that significance piece and you got derailed. Okay. You said things changed for you when you committed to helping others. In this case, uh, your, uh, your charity. What do you mean when you said everything changed? So I think the way that you look at your business decisions, that changes. So and even at the subconscious level, when you make a decision within your business, if it is focused, and this happened in my real estate business too, in year two, we changed all of our um, operating agreements to where I didn't make money as the, the main partner until all of my investors made their money back. And the reason that was so powerful was because now I wasn't focused on making money. I was focused on making money for others. And so an outward look changes the whole dynamic, especially if you're the founder, the CEO, or somebody, if you're the owner, 
it changes the whole dynamics of the business because your decisions now are built upon, well, what significance does this have for my shareholders, for the readers of these books, for the families that we're trying to benefit? And so I think that with it's not something that you can put down on paper because your subconscious will be focused on the the right the correct direction but if you're focused inwardly on yourself your decision making skills will be based on that and it's very easy to see in businesses that don't have that cuz they they fritter and fail but the ones that start to thrive that aren't focused on the bottom line and money like you can see it happen in the airlines when an airline changes their ceo and they focus on money they lose customers so i think that focus is more of a subconscious so the decision is conscious to look outward to have significance but it generates subconscious decision making skills in all aspects of your business personal life especially that's so important if your personal life is a disaster it'll come out in your business um same thing. I think it's the the subconscious decision-making skills that you generate as a business owner every single day is, is what gives that business life. Yeah. You, you mentioned something about purpose earlier, and I want to talk about purpose in a little while because what you've just alluded to there is that when you work on your purpose, not for money, when you work on your purpose and you're good at it, Money just follows. Mm-hmm. If you work just for money and it's not your purpose, guaranteed you'll be unfulfilled. And when you're unfulfilled, you don't perform at your best. When you don't perform at your best, your business doesn't perform at its best. And then everything is short term, just like you said. But we'll come on to purpose in a moment. I want to ask you something else first. I'm backtracking again. Okay. So. You said, I had my burnout, I went to my counsellor, and we talked, da-da-da-da-da. Now, having a mentor, I think, well, I'm going to ask you, is a mentor necessary, and what are the secrets of finding a good one, or the right one, I should say? Yeah, so I I do think that um, there are a couple of things that that are that, you know, in your case, the secrets of success. So having the right mindset, which means your the, the, what significance does your place in your business, your life, what you're doing, making sure that that mindset is honed in. Right. And if you've got the right plan, so we talked about plan, execute debrief. If your plan includes some significance, you couple that with a mindset that, like you said, when you were writing your book, everybody's telling, you, no, you're like, I know that this needs to happen. Go for it. The next piece is having a team or a guide, right? So whether it's a mentor or a guide or setting up your own team, that's kind of part two. And then the, the third piece is action, which I think is the, the thing that may prevent most people from doing that. So if you're an action taker like I am, that's not a, that's not a difficult thing for me to do. I'm going to plan. I'm going to just go on this date. I'm executing the plan. And a lot of people can't do that. They get stuck figuring, they get stuck um, planning again, tweaking their plan. They never start. So the action is as humans, that's how we learn. You go to college, you don't, you're not worth anything other than this college degree that you have until you put into action. And then that action is how you learn. So when people get wrapped around the axle about, I need to have a mentor or a coach or a guide or all this stuff. And I'm like, no, you don't. 
you need to, whatever plan you're doing, you need to start taking action on that. And as you're taking action, those guides come up in your life organically. But if (laughs) never have I started out the day, Jeff, and be like, my intention of today is to find a guide or a mentor. And when I find that person, I'm going to be successful. I've never done that ever. It's not even crossed my mind. I just go, this is where this idea, this I've thought about it. I've planned. I'm now going to start taking action. Those people grow up organically. And I would say, if you are looking for a guide before you start taking action and you have not failed, you have not learned, you are going to get the wrong guide. You're going to get somebody that just takes your money and guides you in the wrong direction because you don't know. You don't know enough about what has happened in your business or what has happened in your life to know anything. So my thing is if you're a person that has a difficult time starting, set a date. So plan enough to get going, set a date, and then just realize every single day you can plan, execute, debrief. So just because you put your plan into action doesn't mean you can't tweak it the next morning. Doesn't mean that you can't tweak it throughout the day as you're executing. And then as you debrief, those are your lessons learned. They're failures. Use those failures to tweak your plan, execute again, debrief. So I think the big piece to that is, you know, as somebody that's that's starting out, right? Like, do I need a guide? Do I need a coach? The answer is that is very helpful. The very helpful. So you don't have to run down 20 paths to figure out the one path to go on. However, a lot of times your coach or your guide may send you down three paths anyways. So you're going to have to do some soul searching and some learning, which means you're going to fail to start out, but you have to start. And that's when those, the real people behind your, and that happened for me in about the second year of my businesses in aviation, all that stuff is go, people will look and go, oh, you're not a talker. You're taking action. You're doing things. And I want to help that because I can add some vectors, right? So like if you're a rocket ship and you got this thrust and maybe no vector, somebody can vector you. That's easy. But putting thrust in a rocket, like I can't motivate jello. I need you to start doing stuff. You know, jello, you poke it. It just kind of jiggles around. No, be a rocket. Don't be jello. You know, we are so much alike. It is scary. <laughs> I, I, I was a guest on a podcast a few weeks ago and they said, uh, oh, so Jeff, in order to to be successful, do you need a mentor? I said, no. And they went, what? Yeah. Everybody needs a yeah. mentor. I said, no. I said, you need to take action. You need to make mistakes. <laughs> and then you know why you need a mentor and what you need a mentor for. What's the point in uh, getting one before you've made mistakes? Otherwise, yeah. they don't know what to guide you on, do they? <laughs> and you mean, oh, oh, yeah, I yeah. see that. This <laughs> isn't good now, Jeff, because we're now just in an echo chamber, just propping each other up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the principles of success, huh? Okay, yeah. so you're going to write another book. You're going to start a new business or a new project, a new venture. What do you do, Dom, to get inspired? Hmm. I think, so a very actionable thing to do. Um, and what started it, and this could be different for everybody because everybody has different schedules, different lives, that kind of stuff. Um, spending five minutes, it's very simple. If you don't have five minutes, I can't help you, right? I don't know how many years you have left, but I do know that you and I all have, we all have 24 hours in a day. So when you start your day, don't grab your phone, don't turn the news on, don't look at your social media, don't do any of that stuff. Sit in silence. 
If you want to pray, pray, meditate, but just be comfortable in that silence, especially if you are a peak performer, action taker type of person. You're going to want to start doing things. The problem with that is that all those fires will be right. You'll be putting out fires all day. So what really changed everything for me, and we hinted at it, waking up at three and four in the morning, that's how I got my businesses off the ground. That's how I got my book written. Same with you. That burned me out, but I learned from it. But the the concept of spending five minutes at each day to just sit there, close your eyes. If you feel like you need to interact with your thoughts, write them down and go back to being quiet and just visualize and internalize what that day means to you and what your intention is. Not a bunch of things. Don't pick 12 things. Just go, what's the one thing I could do today where I know? And just do, if you do one thing a day, you'd be surprised. You get 365 things done a year and it's a lot of things and it's more than most. So just, I think for me, the five minute rule in the morning is take five. You know, for me, when it started out, my kids would wake up at 4.45, five in the morning. So I had to get up at four so that I could beat them to the punch and get my mind straight and my intention straight for that day. And then I was off to the races. And by the time I even got to my day job as a fighter pilot, I had already gotten four or five hours of work in. Do you need, to, does everybody need to do that? No. The, the, the simple thing would be just to get your intention for the day started, plan early in the day without all the garbage and the noise that the world's going to throw at you. Now, the second piece to that is I had to start going to bed earlier. So that changed everything for me. I'm not saying that would work for everybody. Um, but when I started going to bed earlier, I didn't drink that extra beer. I didn't have a bag of chips. I didn't, you know, so my health got better. I was well rested. I exercised. And then every morning I just went, this is where I'm going today. And because if you walk into work rushed and you don't have an intention of your day, the first person you see is going to give you their intention and you're derailed for the whole day. So that's five, just five minutes a day. Yeah. Well, I, this is what I'm writing about at the moment in my current book. This is why I've got this huge smile on my face. And it all kicks off with a quote I picked up, which is, the day begins the night before. How true is that, right? A great wow. metaphor for flying as well, because you don't just jump into an F-16 and say, oh, what shall we do now? There's a huge <laughs> amount of planning that's done beforehand, right? And, and it's just the same for your business, for life, and, and everything else. Tom, I could talk to you forever. So there's so much stuff that I want to cover, but we're running out of time. So I'll have to get you back for another show. But okay. before you Sounds go, good. there before you go, there's a question that I ask every guest. It's okay. real deep. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. Okay. Tom, slice. What is the most important thing you've ever learned? Most important thing I've ever learned. Uh, well, being a stubborn Irishman, um, the most important thing for me, and it took a long time, was that my life lessons were learned through my failures. And not being humble early on, I missed a lot of my life lessons because when I failed, I tried to cover it up with my ego. And that came with time and everybody's different. But for me, had I taken those failures and gone reframed 
like we talked about earlier and said, what can I learn from this? That would have given me a lot more acceleration in my life if I learned that earlier on, but I'm here now. And having a little humility to admit you're wrong goes a long way. And taking those failures, that is the the thing that I've learned in my life that those failures are going to show me the path that I need to be on. That's wonderful. I love that. I'm also gutted that Top Gun is not like real life. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, if someone wants to reach out to you, buy your books, how do they do that? How do we contact you? Yeah, we have we have a lot of we're still growing. We're still a growing company, but singleseatmindset.com. Single is in uh, one singular. So single seat mindset, like single seat fighter pilots, single seat mindset.com. We've got the insider circle there. We've got the competent wingman program. If you want to spend money and buy books, know that the money goes to charity. It's all there. We've got social media all attached there and all of our different websites are all connected in that one spot. That's wonderful. Well, that is it for today. Dominic Slight's Tyke, you have been truly amazing. I want to say thank you. You're going to be coming back on the show for sure. But seriously, I've absolutely loved it. The time has flown by, if you excuse the pun. Has there been many puns in this show? Did you pick them all up? It's all yes. all flying yeah. ones. <laughs> yeah. So you've been awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate you giving your time. I really do. I appreciate you, Jeff. Thank you. And to you, the listener, thank you for listening to The Secrets of Success. I hope the show has helped to ignite your passion, to be a catalyst for action, and giving you the fuel you need to realize your dreams. If you've enjoyed the show, please hit the follow button, like, leave a review, but more importantly, please share the show with even just one person because today has been a real inspirational show about the mindset of a fighter pilot and giving to others, making a difference to charity. You know, it might just uplift someone. So please share the show with someone. If it's more than one, all the better, but even one, make that difference. And it makes a huge difference to us because without your help, we can't succeed so please go ahead right now hit the like hit the follow and share it with just one friend on another note i'm always searching for great success stories so if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you'd like to nominate a guest please contact me on our main website at jeff-smith.com you know i really would love to hear from you dominic slice tyke you have been amazing thank you again i've loved every second and that's all from me thank you for listening and have a great day 